Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. And on a pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, look on my works ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, and I am your host, the aforementioned Isaac Arthur and I've been your host for nine years now as we celebrate the ninth anniversary of our first show back on September 17th of 2014. We'll talk about that more toward the end of the episode, but that original episode, and its unplanned sequel some months later, were focused on the idea that our image of the future from sci-fi, of being a civilization of thousands of planets spread over a galaxy, was wrong. In space opera, humanity colonized endless worlds around yellow stars and occasionally other kinds too, and maybe has a few other minor outposts or space stations in any given star system, maybe one star in a hundred has people living around it, and probably less than a billion of them. This got stuck in our minds and is how we tend to think alien civilizations would behave too, and we often picture these planets, even when inhabited, more like a single city and its suburbs not each individually greater in size than any empire we've ever seen in history. In that context, it's not really surprising people might think that the reason why we don't detect or hear from alien civilizations all the time is because there are a lot of scattered planets and such empires can fall, and their works, once mighty, be gone from sight and record, like those of Ozymandias in Shelley's famous poem. And yet as we'll see today, even empires like that, let alone the great realms that seem likely, should be so robust against being made extinct that only the most obsessed and monomaniacal aggressor could hope to wipe them out. And then the question becomes, what happened to them? Where did that aggressor who brought doom go? Did someone else come for them and spell their doom? And where then they? In that first and second episode of the show, we confronted the scale of this assumption the flawed notion that such empires would be spread so thin, and that any given star system they encounter would be colonized and composed of at least many millions of settled minor planets, if not full Dyson swarms. That our future is not just on large planets, or even minor ones, but mostly in vast megastructures serving as artificial habitats, be they biological or post-biological hosting ones. And I thought today we would try to examine the question of Fermi Paradox from the idea that such empires could exist, and could fall, and asking what, if any, evidence we might have that they did. To ask what sort of wars or weapons might doom such civilizations, or what else could annihilate them so completely. We'll contemplate everything from quasar cannons and other galaxy-rending megaweapons to psychic or cultural poisons and how effective they might be and if there was any way those could have been used, and the user somehow not destroyed along with the original target. While common in sci-fi for entire massive galactic empires to just fall or disappear, this has always struck me as rather bizarre and improbable, 
Nonetheless, since this is a sci-fi Sunday here on SFIA, we will try to ask how that might happen, and also what it would look like if it did. Ever since becoming the president of the National Space Society, I've tended to have fairly regular chats with this or that NSS director or longtime member, and lots of interesting space topics tend to come up, and one of those was how likely an interstellar asteroid like a Muamua might be a piece of a busted up old spaceship or some ancient battle or accident, possibly having collected a coating of ice and dust from floating around the void for eons. I got to thinking about that, and it is a much more complex question than one might first think. First of all, we might ask if any such fragments should be floating around between solar systems, and generally speaking the answer is no, if we're discussing either in-system battles or ones occurring at interstellar velocities. The escape velocity of any solar system, or galaxy for that matter, depends a lot on where you were in that system when you got blown up, or your ship went derelict or rammed into something. Loosely speaking, for solar systems, the escape velocity is tens of kilometers a second, and for galaxies, it's hundreds of kilometers a second. Hence, no ship moving at more than 1% of light speed, which is 3,000 kilometers per second, is going to have any fragment of itself still meandering around the galaxy several million years later. Assuming the derelict or fragment didn't ram into something, it will have entered the intergalactic void by then. At some speed beneath 1%, it's more plausible that it might have slowed from interactions with interstellar dust and gravity in general to some velocity that left it orbiting around the galaxy, possibly quite elliptically or out in the deep and sparser regions of the galactic rim or halo, where we were less likely to encounter or detect them. Though anywhere above 0.1% of light speed, it's decently likely it would leave the galaxy eventually and depending on where and what direction they were headed, it might be even a hundred million years before it got out of the galaxy even if it was outward bound. Similarly, we don't want to ignore the idea that some piece of battle debris from a neighboring galaxy might have had time to get to us by now. Alternatively, we wouldn't really expect anything moving less than 0.01% of light speed, 30 kilometers per second, to be traveling around between stars for very long, in galactic terms anyway. That's roughly how fast Earth orbits the Sun. The Sun orbits the galaxy at roughly 8 times that velocity, 230 kilometers per second, or 0.08% of light speed. And stars in our region of the galaxy tend to be roughly that same speed. So anything moving slower than that relative to the galaxy is getting tugged along by this or that passing star system until one grabs it and pulls it into orbit. Debris from battles or calamities taking place inside solar systems at interplanetary speeds then will generally stay in that system, though some might get ejected to roam the galaxy, but you are not having huge interstellar wars if your ships can only do 1% of light speed, and we are not really expecting space battles to involve huge juggernauts plowing through space at a high fraction of light speed to waste huge amounts of fuel and energy to park themselves at slower speeds where an enemy can more easily pound on them and where they lose the extra punch each of their attacks would have from that higher speed, though unexpected technologies like hyperspace jump drives or inertial mass altering drives might change this dynamic. So we would not expect the normal result of a battle to be the remnants of ships meandering around interstellar space for eons. It's entirely plausible ships would occasionally get wrecked at such speeds, or that the shattered remains of a space station that got nuked or slammed by something at high speed might have fragments moving above the local escape velocity. We would tend to assume recovery efforts would be common though, even if just to minimize navigational hazards. 
So, too, if you're engaging in interstellar conflicts, it would tend to make sense to have lots of space fortresses out past your system's own inner regions. The escape velocity from the solar system at Earth's distance, one astronomical unit or AU, is about 42 kilometers or 26 miles per second, and that drops off with the inverse square root of distance. So something at 4 AU has half that escape velocity, 9 AU a third, which is how far Saturn is, 16 AU is a quarter, 25 a fifth, and Pluto at around 36 AU would only be about 7 kilometers or 4 miles per second, which is in the range of what mundane explosive shrapnel might be, and that's out to the Kuiper Belt, the Oort Cloud is far further out, and something might be out at 10,000 AU, about 2 light months from the Sun. That's where I'd be wanting to put my first line of defenses, not just a couple light hours from my system center, and there it is only a hundredth the escape velocity that is around Earth, 420 meters per second or just under a thousand miles per hour, and odds are whatever station or icy body I built a fortress in doesn't have any significant gravity of its own. That's still high enough that something blown out in airlock by compressed gas venting into space is not leaving that solar system, but it is definitely low enough that fragments from explosions might fly off into the interstellar void. It's also where you'll be a lot less likely to be bothered with trying to grab the pieces to avoid navigational hazards or be efficient at recycle. It is also very likely someone trying to sneak in, or cut up some Oort Cloud listing post might have come in relatively slow to minimize being spotted and to make sure the outpost buried in some mountain-sized ice ball is completely dead, not waiting for a chance to set off the million tons of antimatter or nuclear warheads they have there. So we established that this can happen and thus can now ask how much of such debris we would need to have a chance of spotting such remnants nowadays. If someone had an empire of a thousand wars, and each of those has a couple dozen such detection and defense stations that might have gotten smashed up in a war that happened a million years ago, the answer is no. We're not going to spot that except by freak luck. There are half a trillion stars in this galaxy, and even if we assume that that empire-ending catastrophe left half a million football stadium-sized bits of debris meandering around the galaxy, then even if they got distributed evenly, there'd only be one per million stars. Worse though, the volume of our inner solar system in which we might spot such a body nowadays is probably no more than 4,000 cubic AU or so, while the galaxy's total volume is about 4 billion 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 cubic AU. So a million such fragments would give us a one in a billion billion chance that such a fragment was passing through our volume at the moment. The far vaster Kardashev three civilizations we discuss on the show though, those who number their people like grains of sand on a desert planet, could leave such ruins behind that their debris might float regularly through our star system, over time collecting dust and ice on the fragments to look more mundane and currently, they could have thousands of derelict old probes or defense installations floating around our system covered in dust and ice and we would not know it. Now in the future, probably not more than a couple of centuries from now, we will probably be able to spot any house-sized object anywhere in the solar system out to the Kuiper Belt or beyond, and take core samples to see if it's a regular rock or snowball or some piece of ancient alien ship that's gotten caked with them as it hurtled through space in a million year eulogy to the crew it once held. But the Fermi Paradox does not care about our future except in trying to forecast how visible some alien civilization might be by comparing them to our potential future state. 
The Fermi Paradox discusses the apparent contradiction between the age and immensity of our universe and its assumed abundance of high-tech civilizations, and that apparent absence of our current ability to spot them. So some lone and quiet planet of people who never spread out to the stars could just be a few hundred light years from us and still remain undetected, and the galaxy could have a million such worlds, or even more if they tend to have a half-life of thousands of years. It also doesn't contemplate life without intelligence, as we could have that right now, as close to us as on Mars or on Jupiter's moon Europa. We can't tell yet, let alone if there's some planet 50 light years from here with dinosaurs or robust ecologies inhabited by even Iron Age civilizations. We could only see current civilizations or their ruins if interstellar travel is a practical option, in the latter case because that's the only way they could either have left enough debris around for some to swing by our planet, or because we could then have the ability to visit many planets and search them for ruins, which is no fast task given that erosion and sediment and other factors will bury most planet-bound civilization ruins pretty quickly. But you'll find them because you won't be visiting them, you'll be settling them. In the absence of FTL, fast and light travel, your ships take centuries to get anywhere, and your archaeological team is not beaming down to an abandoned planet for an afternoon of poking around one building. It is an entire planet. You need a lot of time and people to explore that, and it took you centuries to get there and you probably need as long to do the job, so you colonize that rock the same as you colonized all of them you visited. To play devil's advocate though, we've only been at the science game for a few hundred years, and it is entirely possible that FTL is possible, as contradictory to our current knowledge of physics though that would be. In such a case, you really might show up and scan planets and go home a few days later and arrive a few more days later. You also might be engaging in interstellar battles at relative stops, because your ship went into hyperspace and back and never moved much faster than orbital speeds while doing it. Such being the case, interstellar colonization ought to be way easier, and you really ought to have trillions of ships around at some point, if not far more, whose remnants might be way easier to see. A cataclysm that wrecked one planet can also more easily get many others if you have FTL, as you might have a galaxy-wide war fought in just a few years as opposed to a few million, or a virus might lay dormant and spread through the galaxy before it's detected, by which time it proves to be too late to prevent its devastating impact. And of course if ships can move faster than light, it implies a possibility of natural disasters which might too, which itself is a good Fermi Paradox solution. Also, you might need little time to get a survey done. As we noted in our episode The Future of Archaeology, remote scanning and artificial intelligence allows us to do very quickly what it used to take large teams years to achieve, when it comes to finding and mapping out buried ruins or spotting some tower top or rectangular piece of strut sticking out of the ground. So they might get the job done faster and with fewer people than you'd want for a colony, and they might have come there in stasis and plan to go home or to the next spot because what they love is xenoarchaeology not colonizing planets. It is also entirely possible a lot of civilizations might have some sort of black box tech designed to keep a Rosetta Stone and archive around in some bunker or offworld asteroid with a beacon on a timer or a dead man switch to let folks know what happened to them, and some digital archive the size of a room might easily have more info about a civilization than every single record we now have on Earth in every library and hard drive combined. Either way, neither really alters our own equation, 
If I can send some archaeologists to a planet to check it out, I can send some colonists to it as well, and if my civilization has been kicking around for thousands of years after finding such planets and scouting them, it is very unlikely no one is going to decide to go settle it. It really only takes a hundred or so malcontents who want to be far from home to found a colony, and technically a single person could with the right tech. E.T. Clone Home. But the other thing is that you really shouldn't expect abandoned ruins. We believe our galaxy is thrice as old as our planet, which in turn appears to be roughly a million times older than our recorded history, and we believe there were only about 5 to 30 million of us when we entered that period where some folks started writing stuff down, about a thousandth the current population. One of the stronger theories popular nowadays is that we nearly went extinct 70,000 years ago, down to at most 10,000 humans and maybe even to the hundreds. It's hard to guess precisely from genetics after catastrophes because you might have had a lot of lone individuals survive far from others or just a small and decimated tribe that never bred back into the main mix because they survived that catastrophe but the next couple generations couldn't rebuild and recover, and some winter fever or dispute in the tribe or whatever just finished them off. If true though, it means 7,000 years ago there was around one person alive for every thousand nowadays, and 70,000 years ago one person alive for every million these days. The Tobo supervolcano is usually blamed as the culprit for that catastrophe too, but a technological civilization would be way more robust against such natural catastrophes, and even a nuclear war at the height of the Cold War wouldn't have pushed us back to that 10 million figure let alone 10,000 survivors. Either way, 70,000 years later, some planet decimated that horribly would be back to their current numbers, if not way before, and probably not need to reinvent spaceships to go and resettle any worlds that might have been perma-killed. And we're assuming they lost technology and went back to being primitive again, when in all likelihood they didn't lose any technology and they're probably all heavily augmented cyborgs or post-biological critters too, which alters the recovery timelines a lot. A civilization that not only settled every star in its galaxy, but built habitats inside every minor planet takes a lot of killing too. Some rotating habitat or computer core buried kilometers deep inside some asteroid or ice ball is a tough nut to crack, assuming you even know it's there. It's very unlikely any plague or even some nanobot mortal machines with a superhuman swarm intelligence is likely to get everybody in each of the million or more installations of each star system in some billion star empire. With a total population in each system of quintillions where only a thousand might need to survive, you need to have a failure rate of less than one person missed out of every trillion. And they might not even need those odds. Those survivors might be individually superhumanly strong and smart and long-living. In a lot less than a million years, one lone survival of an apocalyptic war that got everyone else might be able to clone themselves up a partner or build themselves a breeding tank and rebuild their civilization complete with full records of everything important and full genetic diversity, assuming they need it, of not just themselves but their whole ecology. DNA is very compressible. A given strand might store in the area of a gigabyte of data, but it is very nearly identical to one for any other member of its species, other species aren't much more different. And while we talk about millions of species on Earth, maybe even millions we don't even know yet, those are bugs and bacteria, not large critters or plants. We covered this more in our episode Evacuation Earth way back, 
but the short form is that it's entirely plausible an entire alien world's ecology and history and art could be stored in something pocket-sized, and it's also possible such archives with 3D printers, or better, might be routine in any interstellar spaceship a civilization built, as a common and cheap feature of standard templates from which they can effortlessly construct new colonies, not much more costly or uncommon than having a dictionary in your houses today, and maybe the same size. It seems that people from advanced civilizations are really hard to wipe out, and shouldn't have any problem regrowing themselves very quickly on galactic timeline scales, really very nearly as fast as their surviving ships can travel back to each lost world to recede it. Thousands of years perhaps, but what is that against billions? So an empire might fall, but not for long. Also if they did fall, in such a case, it must surely have been against some other intelligence, and what the heck happened to them? Why didn't they claim all those wards? What odds are there that the war was so evenly matched it came down to just one lone survivor who collapsed in exhaustion on top of their mountain of enemy skulls? Again though to play devil's advocate, those same sort of advantages for surviving might also often apply to helping be thorough in your efforts to wipe someone out and those methods may be designed to function even if you died and to ensure they were on a timer so as not to pose a threat to you yourselves, your mega mortar machines suicide after the job is done, leaving the galaxy a silent grave. There's a logic to it too, albeit a twisted and brutal one, or maybe just a ruthlessly cold one. You may not believe there is any option for sharing the galaxy with other intelligences, and decide the only option is to rip them out, root and stem. This isn't necessarily an alien either, it may be a faction of your own civilization. As we covered in extragalactic sanctuaries, they should almost always be able to escape, even if by fleeing so fast that no turnaround was possible, and over the cosmological event horizon to the edge of space and time, but that only helps you escape with a seed of your civilization beyond any hope of return, not to share the galaxy in peace. In a case like that you may feel your only option is to crush them because even one single colony might be able to turn around and unleash doomsday weapons of horrifying and disproportionate destructive power, given time and concealment. We've discussed some truly insane levels of weaponry on this show before, indeed I paused while writing the script to make a short video on the Quasar Cannon a weapon that came to mind that would let you convert one black hole anywhere in the galaxy or near it into a weapon able to sterilize the whole galaxy, and that could best be thought of as a machine gun that fires directed supernovae or gamma-ray bursts. We don't actually know what causes gamma-ray bursts, we suspect they have multiple different origins, indeed we only determined what quasars were relatively recently but it's possible some of those we detect are the equivalent of muzzle flares of weapons so terrifying you only deploy them to kill galaxies, or maybe gods. These are the weapons simple Kardashev II or K2 civilizations can deploy, those in total mastery of a single star system and maybe a few neighbors. What a K3 civilization might do is orders of magnitude worse, where whole regions of galaxies might be turned into weapons. Civilizations of such immensity they can turn whole stars into cannons and field more of them than we have rifles. 
where every soldier is likely so trained and augmented that they are a one-man army, and where the memorial walls called with their names might stretch for thousands of kilometers. Indeed, one could imagine landing on an extinct alien planet covered in what resembles labyrinthine-like mazes and walls spanning entire continents, ten billion miles of walls, all as tall as those around any fortress we ever built, only to realize every inch of them was called with a name, rank, and serial number just big enough to read, and that that whole planet was one commemorative memorial to a minor galactic war. Trying to wipe out an enemy like that, you pound any water there so hard that nothing but a bacteria could survive, and precious few of them, and maybe only because a handful were frozen and intact in the shattered debris blown into space by your assault, where they landed on some other planets later to spark basic life back off again in an exercise of ultra-violent panspermia. And that's the minimum. Even if you don't colonize those wrecked enemy territories after you wipe them out, you should be grinding them to pieces, not just salting the earth or even scorching it, but disassembling it. Every world they have you should pound with doomsday devices and nukes, dump mortarbots on, and then take the place apart to build more armadas to hunt down any survivors. But the thing is, we should be able to see that. You could see stuff like quasar cannons fired in distant galaxies in ancient wars, or in their modern aftermath, so we're not talking wholesale ruin, unless again a lot of these gamma ray bursts and other galaxy-rending events that we see aren't as natural as we thought they were. It seems like the stuff of epic stories, and by all means, feel free to borrow that plot, but it isn't a good for me paradox answer because it only says that places too far away for us to really see might be absent of aliens because they utterly obliterated themselves, it doesn't explain why our galaxy is empty of intelligent life currently and doesn't explain what happened to the aggressors. One option is that the battle was so even that practically all of them died, or that their remaining automated devices got them, but that rather implies it's been at least a few billion years since that happened in this galaxy since they should have ripped Earth to pieces looking for any enemy survivors. Again, just one tiny ship fleeing to Earth and hiding under the ocean could hibernate for a few centuries, then rebuild a whole civilization if not many more. Maybe they try to spare other primitive life, and to be fair, as devastating as those weapons are that we mentioned, they are the brute force end of the spectrum. It is likely you could send a quintillion microbots down to a planet with orders to burrow in anywhere and look for anything big enough to be the enemy or some backed up digital version of them. Hypothetically someone could drop that off on this planet today and we might never know it was happening. Ten trillion microscopic and surgical battles went on under our noses, or even in them occasionally. After all, they already do. An alien intelligence might not need to be very big if post-biological, and like bullets or a swarm of piranhas, the subintelligent things killing them probably need not even be a fraction of their size. Another option is that they died off from ennui, a feeling of pointlessness as they realized that all their mortal empires were doomed to fall and nothing they did would matter at the cosmic scale, and that nothing mattered at all. Nihilism is a common suggestion for ways civilizations can end, the equivalent of a psychic poison and it's hard to argue that it's a real threat, but I just have such a problem imagining that every member of a civilization would simultaneously succumb to that, 
especially in a no-FTL universe. If many people suddenly fell to despair, surely those that did not would be cautious in investigating why, and if everybody had a book on the shelf that said, why free will is a lie, they could choose not to read it and come to teach after generations it was a poison book worse than the Necronomicon, and while some might still read it in later generations, even if it wasn't banned in every copy burned, it would still not reach every colony and those would later resettle those abandoned wards if somehow an entire ward fell to it, but perhaps they feared that their colonies would turn on them one day, as well they might, and were a greater existential threat than any asteroid or supernova, and thus guarded their skies not against invaders but against any ships seeking to race out to settle a new world. It seems so clear that it should be possible to build such epic civilizations, so immense their ruined debris would flood the galaxy till we could not miss it, and that they should desire to be so great, and that even if they did not, they should pursue that immensity so that they were safe from any outside force or rebel faction that sought to become a leviathan out in the unending depths of the ocean of night, and in turn sweep them aside. Perhaps they simply came not to care, but what of those who did sweep them aside? Where did Leviathan go? One category of options suggested in Alastair Reynolds' Revelation Space series, and also in Peter Watt's novel Blindsight, is that you don't need conscious and intelligent civilizations to wipe out intelligence and keep it wiped out. Something sub-intelligent but very smart, so to speak, like ChatGPT or even the old supercomputers that first beat chess masters might be able to be unleashed as a swarm intelligence of self-replicating drones and simply overwhelm us regardless of our ingenuity. Those entities could potentially have a reaction of briefly combining to raise their collective intelligence when needed to handle a more difficult problem, then dissipate back down when that threat is ended. Leviathan is not a great beast of the depths, but merely forms in pockets like a storm when it needs to. They may not have the ability to invent tech but can keep making it and imitating it when they find it. Indeed, much as we tend to assume conversation and discussion were the realm of true sentience in the past, and now see chatbots that are nowhere near human intelligence, it may be that ingenuity and creativity of the human genius scale is just as easily done by a dedicated but dumb machine as any of the more mindless tasks we have them do, like lifting objects no human could, or cutting materials more precisely than any surgeon. Could it be that the inevitable result of playing with artificial intelligence isn't to unleash some dark god on civilization that wipes them out, but rather an unintelligent swarm, like Grey Goo, only able to invent technology. In the end, the simple answer is that we do not know. We know our own nature, though, that it can be cautious or reckless, brave or timid, kind or spiteful, inventive or destructive, resilient or forlorn, and we have no reason to think any of these traits would be rare among other intelligences. It is so easy to see the seeds of doom being planted on any world we colonize right along with every other more mundane seed we bring with us. But to me it doesn't wash. I cannot see these scenarios that seem to require every member of every civilization to pick some course of action, the same one, and often at the same time, even if logical or biologically pressured. So why would we expect civilization not to seek to grow when their biology so inclines them, and logic suggests it's a good idea? I feel the bulk of evidence encourages us to assume that intelligence occurs so rarely that if we have seen it at all, 
it really is a case like a gamma ray burst a billion light years away, and no one has ever lived closer. I think the evidence tilts that way, but I think it's the better choice to contemplate anyway, since otherwise it implies such galaxy-spanning grandeur is a dream we can never make reality, or that if we did, it was just a short dream, fated to inevitably end in a nightmare of destruction, where whole worlds burned like leaves in a forest fire. In the end, only time will tell, but as our technology improves every day and our eyes see the heavens ever more clearly, it may be a good omen that we still see no one else out there, as it means we can build a great civilization out among those stars on worlds that have never seen life before, rather than being built on the ashes of ancient empires. So as we mentioned, today's episode marks the ninth anniversary of the show, and when it began I was never thinking about this channel being more than a single video encouraging more realism in science fiction, but from the outset I understood that to promote science and the future you need to convey the material in a way that folks can understand and get enthusiastic about, and that's something our longtime partner, Brilliant.org, understands too. Brilliant understands what works, they know that the best approach is interactive learning, and that learning is a lifelong journey that should be fun and done in bite-sized bits. Brilliant has thousands of lessons from basic to advanced concepts that you can learn at your own pace, at home or on the go, and to fit your needs, whether you're trying to stay up to date on math, science, and computer science, or level up your career, you do not need to spend years and thousands of dollars to learn these topics. Brilliant gives you access to custom content to fit your needs and help you learn at a fraction of the time and cost. Brilliant's been a great partner to this show from our early days, and you can trust them to be your partner on your journey too. Try them out for free for a full 30 days by visiting brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur or clicking on the link in the description, and the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. With 9 years and over 600 posted videos, we have shared a lot of time together, and let me start by saying how grateful I am every single day to get to make this show and see how many people still tune in, more now than ever before. I am proud of the work I did before the show too and mostly enjoyed it, whether it was my time in college or grad school, or in the army during the war, or in government working to serve my local community, which I still get to do. Still, I have never loved any job like I do this one, and it's brought me a great deal of joy. Life's been pretty good since then too, I got married to my wife Sarah a few years back, and started adopting our three children almost a year ago, which irritatingly is still in progress, paperwork takes forever, so I can't say either of my sons or my daughter's names, but they have brought great joy to my life, and six months back I was elected the President of the National Space Society, which has been a great honor and opportunity and also a great deal of fun. Were the show to end tomorrow, I would consider it time well spent and myself lucky to have had such an amazing audience for so long, but of course, folks aren't here for me, they are here for the cool topics about the future, and the neat thing about the future is there is always so much more of it, so I plan to keep doing episodes until the world ends or they put me to bed with a shovel and I am grateful for the opportunity to talk to you every week. I hope you have found or find some things you enjoy as much as I have, and I encourage you to dream big 
and pursue those dreams with relentless vigor, because as we all know on this show, the sky is not the limit. So that's it for today and for our ninth year of SFIA. This Thursday, September 21st, we'll start year 10 off by asking how we can mine atmospheres like those on Venus or Titan, or even gas giants and stars. Then we'll close out the month with our live stream Q&A on Sunday, September 24th, and then on the 28th we'll have an exploration of what traveling the galaxy as an adventurer or lone wanderer will be like, in Have Spacesuit, Will Travel. After that we'll jump into October to explain what vacuum and zero-point energy are on October 5th, and then we'll have an episode not on spaceships but the factories that will make them on October 12th. And stay tuned for our next Sci-Fi Sunday on October 15th where we'll contemplate entire planets turned into giant factories in Forge Wards and Industrial Planets. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes, early and ad-free, on our streaming service Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and see you in year 10!